everyone, and we're live. You're tuning into Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today, I have a very interesting guest in the studio with me. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Could Hi. you please uh, introduce yourself to those who might not know who you are, what you have started, what, what businesses you run? Please introduce yourself. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, my name is Carl, um, and I'm the co-founder of a company called Headmill Media Group. Yeah. Um, and under this group, we run a company in Singapore called SGAG. Yeah. We also run our sister companies, um, MGAG in Malaysia, PGAG in Philippines. Yeah. And our newest baby is a company called Headmill Creators Network, uh, also out of Singapore, but we do a lot of work with TikTok and YouTube creators uh, in the region and around the world. So my job, uh, I founded SGAG first in 20. 15 yeah. with uh my more famous and and more popular co-founder yeah. Xiaoming. Uh, yeah. So I'm the guy behind the scenes uh that runs the business side of things, the administration and the corporate business side of things. Uh, so people don't see me on screen. I don't appear yeah. in, on screen. Um, so that's essentially what I do. Has he legally changed his name to Xiaoming? Not yet, but I, I was just... I was just thinking in the shower yesterday, is there a way to trademark that to him? <laughs> that would be pretty cool, you know, with TM, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's doable. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That would be quite fun for him, I think. So, for people who might not have heard or know what ASGAG is, could you please elaborate what is sure. ASGAG? So, ASGAG started off really as a meme page that um, he and I founded back in university. Um, and we really saw this gap where we were consuming a lot of memes, yeah. specifically memes from around the world. And we would laugh at anything and everything that meme pages would put up around the world. And then we realized that there was nothing local. There was nothing that would make us laugh that came from new sources or significant happenings from local happenings mm. and so we started that as a fun thing you know just to make fun of things that like back in 2012 when we started it wow. train breakdown yeah yeah um, haze from indonesia was this big thing that people yeah. would always talk about yeah. and it was always all the funny stuff was happening in comment sections mm. of cna and st uh and we just sort of said hey what what if we started making memes about these things yeah. how would people enjoy it or how would people receive it um and you know it just started going 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 and we it became like a a, a hit of dopamine every time right mm. like whoa i want to get more likes whoa yeah, i want to get yeah. more shares so that was really the early days uh and and now we make a lot of content say it's still with memes primarily we don't write articles we don't do news we primarily do memes yeah. um and we make videos we make a lot of comedy based videos uh entertainment based videos uh and and that's what we do so before I go further. I would like to get your 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 thoughts on this particular thing. Why? What is the unique uh, point, or is there even is, is there even a unique point of memes? What's so unique about them as compared to more traditional forms of, I guess, media like articles or yeah. even videos? What's what's so unique about them? To me, the fundamental success of the meme as a format has been exponentially growing because of the dominance of the mobile phone mm. the mobile phone is a small six inch screen that used you, you kind of thumb through yeah. and the growth of social media of scrolling of 
kind of expecting a lot of content in a very short span of time yep. is a fundamental behavioral change from traditional means of media. Uh, for example, reading. Reading an article in the early days of the World Wide Web was the dominant medium. I would enter into an, uh, a website as my landing spot yep. when I first log on, when I go online. I would go to my favorite website to read articles yes. and I would spend a good hour reading and consuming articles from my favorite website. Like for the soccer guys, it would be like soccernet.com. For for everybody else, it would maybe be Yahoo News or something like that or, or, or another website. But I think the birth of social media and the, the change in consumption patterns of scrolling and expecting to consume a lot within a short few seconds yeah. really gave rise to the form of the of the meme format which allows you to consume and get entertained or receive a piece mm -hmm. of information in an indirect but funny way that you can get in no less in, in no more than five seconds right within five yeah, seconds yeah. you you receive a piece of update maybe it's about something happening in your country and you get a funny spin to it and it is done with a format with a template that is trending so it mm. all kind of meshes together in this really unique format, which was very interesting for us. Do you think the point that we can, we have the ability right now to even curate what we want to see, do you think that factors into to the idea that it, it is wholly unique because we didn't used to have that ability before, like it was curated by someone else. We, we, we follow people based on their own curation, but right now we have the ability because of how technology is so easy, uh, and it's so affordable right now that we are able to create what we want to see. Absolutely. I think a lot of the young people we know and we see are just following meme pages, right? Mm. All sorts of meme pages. You have dang meme pages, you have soccer meme pages, you have Christian meme pages, <laughs> you have all sorts of meme pages, right? And and it's really entertaining because some of them are no holds barred, right? And you're like, whoa, that is a dank meme right there. Yeah. And, and I think that is just a very quick way of getting entertained without heavy data consumption as well. Yeah. Um, unlike a video, you would yeah, spend yeah. a lot of data just watching something. Yeah. And if it's not exactly the kind of video you want to watch, you're like, crap, there goes my data. But yeah. a meme is super short. It's, it's like, like a JPEG, maybe yeah. a couple of a kilobytes. Couple of KB, yeah. And you're like, I can just keep going. And, you yeah. know, I can just keep scrolling. And yeah. I think that is... If you think deeper about memes, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about memes. So the, 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 the more philosophical side or more? I would say, yeah, practical, philosophical, uh, utility of a meme, yeah. the, the, the evolution of memes. Yeah, we think yeah. a lot about these things, um, which I, I, I never expected myself to be thinking <laughs> about such things. So when you say the, the evolution and, uh, I guess, the more deeper side of it. What do you mean by that? Okay, so when memes first started, if you th if you think back to 2012, um, okay. around that era, yeah. when memes first started, you have a lot of um, caricatures or cartoon mm. sketch memes, yep, yep. Uh, like the rage face, and then you oh, have yeah, the yeah, yeah. why you know yep. character. Yep. Um, you would have all these rage comics. They were called rage comics. That was, I think, the birth of the meme form format. So a lot of people would have all these random images that you don't, know where it originated from or mm. who was the artist behind it but they all sort of somehow traveled through popular culture on the internet and became a template right and every kind of reaction that you had to a social issue to a yeah. local issue you would you would use a template to express yourself yep. and that was really the early beginnings and then you saw the death of it um mm. these memes started phasing out 
sometime in 2013, 14. That's a short um, life cycle. Very yeah. short. And, and we, we still used it. We still use those formats. And, and the younger meme audience, the, the, the trendier meme audience will call us out like, you guys are old school. <laughs> you all have become uncles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all don't know what you all are doing. Yeah. And we're like, oh shit, there's a shift, you know? And we started really diving deep into that. And we noticed that a lot of the memes were shifting into the rage comic format was like a comic. Yep. There would be many speech bubbles. There yep. would be a lot in one meme. Then it moved into popular cultural reference memes like the Dwayne Johnson turning behind in a car going like <gasps> kind of a face. Gotcha. And, and a lot of it was based off movies. Mm. Um, like when Bird Box came out on Netflix, wow, there were so many memes about the Bird Box movie. Yeah. <laughs> and and those kind of took uh, took the meme economy by storm economy yeah so so we call it the meme economy where the templates and the formats come and go yeah uh based on popular culture and i think global references uh come into play as well and and there is actually a group of curators on reddit who have a, a meme economy thread that that tracks the formats uh the rise and falls of a t- particular template so i would say it has evolved from rage comics to with a lot of text to very simple cultural reference memes where sometimes for example the among us memes you would mm. need to know what among us is in order to get the reference of the joke in that text that is layered onto the meme and for maybe people who don't know what among us is you won't get the joke but for people who know what among us is you would totally get it you're like wow that's a brilliant meme so there's a lot of that popular culture trending kind of references exclusivity like if you Um, know it you are like kind of the same kind you perhaps do the same thing yeah and i would say young people are so quick to pick it up that they all get it immediately, right? Because they are all consuming so much information from social media that they get it, right? And and that's something that's super interesting. Interesting. Um, do you remember a time before the memes? Absolutely. Um, I live. I w- I was born in a generation where I lived my earlier part of my life without internet. Okay. And I saw the birth of internet in Singapore as yeah. a you know kid growing up. The first generation of uh, becoming an internet user um, was very different. It was ICQ. It mm. was IRC. I made most of my friends in school from IRC. Yeah. Um, it was Friendster. It was MySpace. Yep. Um, and I spent a lot of the, my time uh, navigating the internet, right? Yeah. And in those early days. And, and I think one of my legendary favorite local sites was uh, talkingcock.com what is that um it's like a forum it it is a satire yeah. uh satirical website founded by a gentleman called colin okay um, and <laughs> he is actually a lawyer yeah who loved writing um satirical pieces about the government in particular yeah, yeah. uh and he would use very local language uh, references and just lame jokes to populate this website called talkingcock.com and I was completely fascinated by it I would go there and just look for the latest jokes they eventually made a movie um, that came out in the 90s the Talking Cock movie and I watched it probably 20 times um, because I was such a big fan of it so that was live before social media that was early days of local comedy and local internet so you kind of have the, I guess, right now, the valuable perspective of 
having lived through a time before the internet and subsequently being immersed in it and right now where there is no going back to that particular time. No way. No way. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So like everybody born from from now will be fully submerged in internet culture, whatever the internet has to give. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. Um, has let's say for the the the, the starting and the founding of, of SGAG initially, was that planned in any sort of particular? I'm particularly curious about uh your your journey with regards to education in Singapore. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah. So. I, I was a typical student, um, went through school, yeah. secondary school, went to JC, went to uni, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Like, I had no clue. Um, and I think I, I came from SMU, which is a business school, and I went through the first year of my education there wanting to become like everyone else, which was to get a job in a bank. Full stop. <laughs> That's what everyone else wanted back right? then. <laughs> uh, and yeah. very quickly, I realized I couldn't. I couldn't do this. I couldn't compete with the people next to me because I was not interested in finance. Yeah, I had no interest whatsoever in putting on working clothes and <laughs> taking a train to Raffles Place. Yeah. Uh, it was not something that excited me at all. Yeah, and. And the, 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 the narrowness of that perspective, perhaps in my opinion, just this race, never ending race of going towards that direction scared me a lot. Yeah. And I started in year two quickly thinking about alternative paths. Were there any or were there a um, lot of room even for alternative paths? I was lucky enough to, to meet a, a a friend of mine who who was also in school with me and became a real estate agent while he mm. was a student and he was killing it. But yeah. this was 2010s. It was Boomtown yeah. for real estate. And he was like, you know, give it a shot. And I did. And it was good. It was good, good couple of years. And it exposed me to uh, my first income source, mm. right? Uh, as a student, working student. And, and, the kind of money that you make as an agent is, is ridiculous, right? Um, you make more money in a deal. If you get a, if you close a big deal, you make, you make somebody's entire year salary mm -hmm. in one deal. And I saw all these people around me making that kind of silly money. Um, and I was like, wow, I don't really need to be in school anymore. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't need to be in the rat race. Uh, I kind of want to do this forever and ever, <laughs> right? And, and I did it. Through my entire education, so like uh, for four two? years. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, yeah, and I was quite successful at it. Yeah, um, but then the government put all these additional tax rules into into it when I was uh, in my fourth year of school, yeah. graduation year, um, and it killed the market in many ways. People mm. couldn't buy sell houses like they used to. It yeah. was very expensive, so it became. You know, a very thin market for, for a lot of, uh, maybe a new home buyers, a lot of maybe, uh, expats rental. Yep, yep. Not so much kind of just people with stupid money buying and buying and buying yeah. and buying. That was the market of the old. And because of that, um, I kind of had to relook at, Again, at that yeah. and go, uh, do I really want to continue this? And, and at that time I was, 
embroiled in a bit of a, uh, uh, I would say a potential legal fight with another agent mm. who, who was twice as old as me. I was quite young and he was <laughs> twice as old as me, you know, and he's the typical uncle agent who very successful, yep. um, drives a big Mercedes Benz and he was threatening to sue me because his client preferred to work with me over mm. him and he threw a legal letter at me and I looked at him and I, and I really, didn't see myself doing this past graduation because I'm like, why is a 50 year old guy suing a 20 something year old dude? And, and I'm like, that makes no sense. And, and his ability to do the job was no more than what it was not anywhere higher than what I was doing. And I was like, man, I don't really want to spend my career doing this. It's not for me. I've done enough. And I, and I felt that deep sense of, yeah, I've done enough. Yeah. It's time to move on. So, so, so that I think was the beginnings of my journey right when I graduated into yeah. my search for what's next, knowing that I didn't want a job. That, that <laughs> kind of, I would imagine it kind of showed you what could potentially be your future in a sense. It could, but I, I knew at that point very clearly a few things. Um, yeah. I was not driven by money. I okay. had, I had no and very little interest in buying branded things i had very low and little interest in earning a higher commission um i was more interested in perhaps building something i wanted to build something i felt very itchy i felt very dissatisfied with just earning a commission i wanted to build something uh i would say significant i wanted to build something that left impact in people and i was trying to figure out what that was interesting um I'm just curious, like for this particular, I guess, perspective you have towards money, has it always been the case? Even up to now, um, has it, oh, do you remember what was the, who, who or what introduced you to this particular outlook? Or have you always had that since young? I would say my, my grandparents were extremely poor. Um, hmm. and, and they were poor to a level where my grandfather was a coolie mm-hmm. who would, carry rice sacks on his back yeah. and, 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 and just transport sacks of rice. My, my grandmother was a cleaner and there were days where my parents, when they were growing up, would have no food on the table. Mm. And my dad hustled his way. Uh, they were from Hong Kong. Yep. So he hustled his way out of Hong Kong, came to Singapore as an expat, yep. built his life here and worked his butt off to give my myself and my brother a very comfortable childhood Mm -hmm. and and seeing that i think journey from from that background to having a expat comfortable life um gave me a deep sense of i think security Mm. that you know the hustle the determination the will to succeed will will help you get through you know, probably anything you might face and, yeah. and hard work was, was a really a, a big sort of thing in, in, in that journey that my parents took, uh, and taking risk and, and sort of carving out something for yourself was, was something that I think I grew up with. Um, and because they worked so hard to give us a comfortable life, I never felt in want. I never felt Ooh, interesting. like I lacked anything. I yeah. kind of had everything, but I was not a sport kid because they were super Asian parents, dingy <laughs> style. But they always <laughs> reminded me that I would have everything I need to to do well. And so I kind of went off feeling like I don't really, like all I need is food on the table, a roof over my head, 
and a shower. Uh, those were things that I, I need to survive. And yeah, I will yeah. always have that because my parents could provide that. And with that as a baseline, yeah. as a foundation, then what would I do with this foundation knowing that if I failed or screwed up, I could always return back to a sense of survival or at yeah. least a baseline of survival, yeah. which was comfortable in so many ways yeah. compared to many other people out like, there. Mm. So that gave me, I think, this deep sense of I don't need money. I need to look for something else that would give meaning and impact to my life. It's interesting because I can imagine that the opposite would be true as well. That you having knowledge that you have this comfortable backing that you could squander. So I can imagine that to be true as well. Yeah, but because because my parents grew up with nothing, yeah. they and sh- they gave us so little. They always gave us enough, but never excessive. Mm. So I never had the fanciest Tamagotchis or Digimons. Oh, wow. I never had expensive stuff, even yeah. if we had excess we always went for the basic options in whatever we would choose because it was a mindset of we should never squander we should never take for granted what we have today because we knew what having nothing meant oh that is interesting um you mentioned the words carving out and i I, and i find it uh that particular choice was to be interesting because it, it, it means that you the word kind of means that you have to fight tooth and nail really for for for, for something. Um, could you speak on your your experience post the the retail retail estate agent job? What next? So you know, I I had some savings from my job, and we were all looking into this job market as a fresh graduate class, and all my friends were getting great job offers. It was a good year. Um, 2013 was a decent year it was not an economic crisis year so people were getting jobs right and and they were getting fancy jobs in consulting firms yeah. uh, banks uh, you know high paying jobs uh, and I was like I kind of worked four years yeah. I have a bit of savings what would I do that would make me restart again and I looked at what I had done in school I did a, a degree a bachelor's of science and economics mm. and I realized that I had no hard skills. I had all these economic theories okay. <laughs> that if I don't work in a bank or I don't work in econs, they were kind of pointless. Mm. I wanted to build something. And that was also the year or the, the era where people were building all these apps, right? There was a lot of app building going on. It was the start of that. Yeah, it was really the start of that. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to build an app, but I really don't know how. I, I didn't learn anything like that in school. So... The first thing I did after graduating was to go for a 13-week boot camp to learn how to code and yep. how to build apps. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. And I crashed and burned quite early on because <laughs> I sucked at it. I, I didn't have an engineer's mind. My, mm. my mind was all over the place. And I had an idea. I had an idea already of what app I wanted to build. Yep. And the hustler in me decided halfway through the 13 weeks that damn i'm never gonna be an engineer i'm never gonna build apps myself but the fella who was teaching the course now that guy's a brilliant engineer Mm. he's a brilliant software engineer what if i hustled him to pitch him an idea to see if he would build the app for me right so that was my thinking halfway through and that's exactly what i did Uh, i went up to him and i was like hey i have this brilliant idea 
would you start a company with me? <laughs> you're, you're, you're supposed to teach her at that time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he said, no, who okay. are you? Okay. Right. But Fair that's enough. a great idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a great idea, but I don't start companies with people that I don't know. Mm. And I was like, fair enough. What would it take for you to build this app for me for free? Because I have no money. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, well, you claim to be able to sell this product, right? Um, what if I built it for you in two weeks? Give me two weeks. I build it for you. I'll build you a, what do we call MVP? And you go and get clients. Yep. And if you get enough clients, I will consider selling, uh, starting a company with you. Oh, wow. Uh, conditions. Yeah. So that was really the start of my first entrepreneurial journey into what we call the startup space. Yeah. What, what gave you the confidence back then to, to, to hustle someone like that? I think it was my background in the real estate job because mm. I was 21 years old. Yeah. Um, and the first property that I sold was, I think, $3 million at Reflections at Capo Bay. Um, <laughs> and I knew nothing about real estate, but it was a beautiful property. Mm -hmm. All I needed to do was to convince the seller, the buyer that yeah. you should buy it. And... You know, it was, it was like, there was a lot of things to say. I realized I could say all these things without, you know, stretching my, my, my brains too hard. It was quite natural. <laughs> like, oh, look at that. That's beautiful. Look at that. The sea view. Look at the angle of the facing. And I, I could just go on and on and on. Yeah. And the guy eventually bought it. And, yeah. and when he signed the, the option to purchase, he saw my IC. He was like, you're 21. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, your commission. It's $30,000. Mm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, holy cow, that is a lot of money for a 21 year old. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and that was the moment I realized I had a bit of a gift. Mm. I, I, I looked a bit older than I, I actually was. I, I generally look a bit more mature and I realized I had a bit of a gift to connect with people mm. um, and convince them to do something. And so I decided to test that hypothesis without commissions in place, without exchange of property or value yep. in place. Could I convince somebody to spend the next few years of their lives building something with me for free? Was was that, did that lead to the, the app and the business? Yeah. yeah. So eventually I got the clients. Yeah. And he was like, wow, you can really sell, huh? And I was like, yeah, I can sell. I can sell anything. Um, will you be my co-founder? And that's what he did. He became my co-founder. We started our first company together and I raised a round of financing for my first company with him. And that was really the birth of, uh, my entrepreneurial journey. And what, what happened to that today? What, what happened after? So I think. Having found a bit of success in sales, yep. having hustled somebody to start a company with me, <laughs> I was brimming with confidence. I, gotcha. I was super confident. And I think I needed that sort of sledgehammer in my face mm. to, to humble me and remind me that in this new world of tech and entrepreneurship, you know nothing, right? You know nothing. And I failed to go past the nine month mark. Um, with him, we, we spent all the investment money and we couldn't really build the company to the next stage. And I realized I was so humbled by it that I needed to learn 
and reflect on all the lessons of my experience till this point and figure out what it meant for me and what it meant for my journey ahead, uh, in, in the humility I received in the failure in, in, in the whole breakup of, of this company. It was a very, very pivotal moment for me at that point. You, I think, I think in one of your talks, you mentioned about, uh, failures in particular and how they could be beneficial in, in teaching you certain lessons. Would you, would you consider like this, uh, as something that's pivotal that, perhaps shifted your, your, your particular worldview on certain things even to this day. 100%. I, I had squandered my investors' money, mm. uh, failed, it amounted to nothing. My co-founder went home to KL. Yep. I, I was left with nothing, right? And that's when people, my same investor came to me and, and offered me these wonderful opportunities. And I looked at him and I said, dude, I, I'm a failure. Like I just failed. Why, why are you giving me all these good things? Right. Why are you trying to help me? And he's, he just said, look, nine out of 10 fail in their first company or fail in startups in general. You are one of the nine, right? It doesn't mean that you will never succeed. It doesn't mean that you're of no value. In fact, you're of more value now because you have learned so much in your journey of failure that you make me want to hire you because Interesting. Uh, you have all this operational experience in the real world. Yeah. And I never saw it that way. I saw myself as, wow, I'm a humiliation to him, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. he saw me very differently and I was like eternally grateful for that because that gave me a bit of hope again, right? And he laid out some options for me, um, job offers, very mm-hmm. tangible offers. And he was like, if you don't want these job offers, I will connect you with people that will probably want to hire you because of your experience in this yeah. field and just let me know. And suddenly it didn't look as bad. It didn't look as dark. It didn't look as hopeless as, as what I thought it was. Yeah. And, and for me, that was so life changing. It was so, so much kindness, so much grace, so much compassion, right? Mm. That, wow. I was like, this guy is a very successful investor. Why would he care about? A small little guy who failed. Yeah. And, and that I would eternally take back as a huge lesson. Interesting. On hindsight, what do you think he saw in you? I don't think it's not just me. He does it to everybody. Interesting. And, and he is doing it right, I believe, for, for young entrepreneurs. He spends a lot of time in, in the entrepreneurship space in Singapore. And, and I respect that because he treats every entrepreneur, be it you are super successful or you're just starting out, he treats you exactly the same. He doesn't <laughs> treat perfect. you any differently. Yep. And, and I thought that was beautiful because a lot of the investors or people with money would treat you very differently if you were successful versus when you are nobody. But mm. he treated everybody the same, which was why, which is why he is so successful. Interesting. Do you think, um, I guess society and in a sense, popular culture these days, we have sort of like a misconception with regards to failure. We think it's the end or be all and we avoid it like the plague to a certain degree. I think, yes, especially in Asia, right? Uh, a lot of people are very scared of failing because the entire system of upbringing, of school, of education is you are told you cannot fail. Like, fair fail- enough. Failure fair is, enough. is terrible. And, yeah. and if you, if you do badly, if you fail in school, you fail in a test, you're never told why you failed. You're never told 
what you could have done better. You never get to rework your 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 mm. failures. You never get to evaluate how you can do better. It's always you failed. You're failure. <laughs> you're streamed downwards. Yep. You're streamed. You're normal. Yeah. You're technical, <laughs> right? And and yeah. the whole system screams at you for being a failure. Yeah. Um, but I saw it quite differently from that point. Like failing is so important. Like failing teaches you so much. It's so painful, but it, the pain and the lessons you learn is so much more valuable than cruising throughout life and never hitting a road bump. And then mm. you hit a road bump and you don't know how to recover. Right. Failure, I think, teaches you this resilience, this set deep sense of grit that you can take on anything and, and keep moving forward. But, but in saying that, I would imagine that you kind of have to be open to these lessons as well, right? You can't say, oh, I've encountered this failure. Um, like, like for your particular example, you just squandered the money. You, you, one could imagine that you could be paralyzed by it. You don't know what to do. You want to just resign yourself to, to a simpler life. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I've seen people who have chosen that path of yeah. maybe hitting down a different road, tapping out. Um, nothing wrong with that. But I think for myself, I, I, I read a lot and I studied a lot about persistence, resilience, grit. Angela Duckworth calls it mm. grit. And that was intriguing to me. It's like, what if I go again? What if I keep going and going and going and going and, and what will happen? Yeah. Will I eventually find something? You know, and, <laughs> and again, going back to my baseline, if I failed again, yep, yep. then I go home, la, you know, like my mom is food on the table. I have shelter. I'm in such a position of privilege yeah. that I can go again. Yeah. Interesting. Um, before I proceed with the conversation, I'm just curious to know, has there been a favorite failure of yours? I think, I think that the story I told was probably the biggest failure and probably the favorite failure because it, it, it propelled so many lessons for me to take back so much reflections that I think molded me in so many ways that, that gave me perspective on how to approach the next uh, career path or the next company I was going to work on. Yeah. And I guess moving forward from that, um, what do you bring, um, I guess, to the early days of ASCAG? What, I guess, refresh perspective that you have like compared to, to 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 the previous business i think the first thing i did was um i didn't want to take people's money i didn't mm. want to raise capital because raising capital from the beginning gives you a lot of pressure it gives you a sense of i owe somebody something fair enough so i i i told um my partner like no let's not raise money let's Let's get revenue because my first company mm. never had revenue. The first thing we should do is to get revenue, right? So that we can feed ourselves. Yep. Um, because the first company I never fed myself, I was paid a very pathetic salary for a long time. Yep. Uh, and, and it sucked, you know, it really sucked. So I think I told them the first thing we need to do is to go out to get revenue and let's hustle. Right. So I was literally, I always call myself this uh, term, which is I was probably the first meme salesperson in, in Singapore. <laughs> I was knocking on doors. Yeah. I was calling people and I was like, hey, you want to buy a meme? Yeah. And people thought I was crazy, right? Like, yeah. oh, meme salesman. Yeah. Uh, but, but that was really the early days, which was, it's okay if you say no. I'm totally okay. I'm used to rejection. I'm used to failure. Uh, and... I have no expectations of success. I would just hustle, right? Just earn an honest day's keep and yep. I would just keep going door to door. And that was really the attitude of hustling, which I think was 
it still is a big DNA, big part of our DNA today. What were some of the conversations you were hearing back or some of the talk you were hearing back from clients that you rung up uh, wanting to pitch, uh, I guess, memes to them? Because I would imagine, uh, I see on your page right now that you have some uh, really like, like, how would I say, quote unquote, serious entities like, uh, I guess, SEDF, I think MOE was on it as well. So I'm just curious to know, like early days, what were the conversations that you're hearing back? No, no, no. Everyone's like, no, no, no. Don't be an idiot. Like, go don't away. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> this is, this is your one hit wonder. It will fade away. Yeah, uh, yeah. Memes will go away. Uh, you know, there was a lot of rejection. It was like out of 10 conversations, nine were rejections. Mm. Or maybe nine and a half. Nine then, <laughs> then you need that one person, that one crazy person who looks you in the eye and go, you know what? I'll give this a shot. You know? And, we just needed that. We just needed that one person to say yes. Yeah. And, and, and allowed, that allowed us to showcase what potential there, there could be. And it gave us this sense of hope, right? So a lot of the conversations were rejections. A lot of it was my boss would never say yes to this. Mm-hmm. There, and I noticed that a lot of it was going to the bosses and a lot of the junior or middle management would say, it doesn't make me look good in front of my boss to put this on the table. So I realized a lot of people were trying to make themselves look good in front of their bosses. Yep. So that was uh, very interesting because I never had corporate experience. I never understood what it meant to have a boss that you mm-hmm. wanted to please and, and KPIs you wanted to achieve. So my next move was then to find the bosses. Right. If most of my rejections came because bosses were not approving, then I needed to convince the bosses. Make it sound uh, so logical. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, yeah that's the next step. <laughs> and the question then was, where do you find the bosses? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it was a very straightforward thing for me, which was, yeah, I need to find bosses. I needed to find, and bosses would never entertain me. I'm a nobody. Mm. Nobody would reply my email to pitch a meme. So. I needed to get into conferences because ah. that's where all the bosses yep. gather. Yep. All the C-suites gather for yep. these fancy conferences to network, to, network yep. to, to do things, listen to things, learn. And I pitched um, these conference organizers a story of the future of digital, which was social, right? Which was crowdsourced social content, which was social media. It was still a very new thing this back was like, then. I would say 2014, 2015. Yeah. It was still so mm. new to many of them, right? Yeah. Um, and I managed to get a couple of these sessions, uh, speaking sessions, and I would pep talk myself, saying to myself that this is your one shot and making a big difference in the future of the company. Because if you convince the 500 people out there that this is going to be valuable for them, the business is going to change overnight. Mm-hmm. So I would make sure that my presentations were was going to shock the pants off of them <laughs> and make them go, oh my God, I need to work with them. Yep. Right. And it was, it was my Olympic moment. I saw that as my Olympic moment that all my years of failures and rejection and training leading up to this was moment. leading up to speaking at a conference. <laughs> yeah. And I saw that as my moment to shine. And I would treat those as my performances. And I would, mm. I'm not a natural entertainer or stand up comedian. I'm not, I don't have that background at all, but I saw that as the performance I needed to nail. And I would go in and I would make this crazy presentation using memes, which would always make people laugh. Yeah. And that was the the start of that snowballing of momentum that I needed to convince senior management that the teams should talk to us. Their teams should talk to us. 
assuming that you're not a robot, I would imagine that you would be experiencing like a flurry of emotions because you let's let's say like let's say one of those first conferences that you have to you have to go to you have to present to all these people who arguably have a certain measure of success. Could you talk us through, or could you talk me through what were the the, the emotions that you were feeling? Because that is your moment to shine. And if it 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 doesn't work out, it will reflect on the business and who might who knows what might happen. Yeah, I think I had the I have nothing to lose mentality. Okay, um, so I was not scared of failure. I had already a much bigger failure. If no mm-hmm. one buys my memes, fine. <laughs> right? I had already lost a company, lost my co-founder, yep. laid off staff. So if people don't buy my memes, or out of five hundred, if one person comes, that's fine. Or if nobody comes, then let's move on to the next one. Yep. So I had this like sense of there's nothing to lose. Let's put on a show. There are no expectations. I don't have any expectations. I'm also not hard on myself like that. Mm. So I'm pretty easygoing. So I was just like, but I need to perform. I need to make sure it, it goes. So obviously there's a bit of nerves. There's a little bit, but I realized very early on going on stage that public speaking was my thing. Oh, um, interesting. I didn't have to rehearse. I didn't have to memorize. I knew everything in my head. Uh, it all came out naturally and I enjoyed it very much. Um, and I wanted to go on a road show. I wanted to go as many conferences as I can, yep. big or small. Yep. I don't care. I just wanted to get out there. And I think there was one year I did 50 talks in one year. Jesus. <laughs> it's like one every uh, week. Almost, one every yeah. week, uh, maybe three to four a week. Yep. I would go to, uh, uh, I would even fly to a country to do three speaking engagements, um, just as a sales pitch, as, as a bit of a sales effort. Uh, and I wanted to see how much I could do. Yeah. Cause it is multifaceted, isn't it? First, you, you, you get to talk to a wide audience. You get to present yourself in that particular fashion. Second, you get to sell the, the company yeah. that you get to network after. Yeah. Yeah, so it all worked um, for me. It snowballed our reputation. It mm. snowballed interest. It snowballed connections. Um, and but it was very tiring. It was I would imagine extremely so, yeah. tiring. I I I I I came off that year going. I never ever want to speak in a conference again. <laughs> um, I don't want to get on stage again. Uh, and I reject. I started rejecting all these engagements the subsequent year. Uh. And I realized, yeah, there was a level of burnout and fatigue, but it worked. That was the most I would important. imagine it worked, yeah. yeah. Do you remember one of the first clients that actually took, took you guys on and, and started working? Because for memes, uh, there's usually like a satirical spin to it. Yeah. It's usually comedy and yeah. it's usually a form of, uh, I don't have a better word for it right now, degradation. You're like degrading yeah. something. It's Correct. humor in it. That's so right. For a brand to want to work with you guys to, to be put in that particular perspective, it is a very interesting mix of, uh, I guess, like a transaction. Could yeah. you speak to that? So, for sure. Every junior middle person would be like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. You're going to ruin my job. You're going to make it difficult for me. No, 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 no. So remember, I needed to pitch to the bosses. So yep. there was one crazy CMO, chief marketing officer. She called my my co-founder and I, and she's like, hey, I want to make memes. And we're like, <laughs> yo, are you serious? You, you're the CMO of a big airline. Why would you do that? And she's like, yo, I think memes are the future. I think you guys are making amazing stuff. I totally buy it. Right. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, you're pretty cool, man. Even though you're like much older than us, yep. you are legit cool. And she's like, I'm serious. 
right? And she's like, come, come meet me and let's, let's, let's talk about it. And she bought into it, right? She, she was the first one who took a big bet on us. And we made so many memes for, for the brand because I mean, we didn't care about brand fatigue. We're not so sophisticated. We're just like, we just want to make money to put food on the table. So we did it. And, you know, that was that. It was like a six month engagement or something like that. And, you know, we went about our daily lives. And then there was this next one particular day after working with her for, for a period, extended period, we suddenly opened our inbox and there were so many emails of people wanting to work with us and people congratulating us. And I was like, what, what happened? Yeah. Right? I, what, why? <laughs> like, why today? Why yeah, now? Yeah. And then, I was like, why are you congratulating me? So I called one of those email emailers up and I was like, hey, why are you congratulating me? And he was like, oh, you didn't know? You guys won like six marketing gold awards last night at the award ceremony. Were you not there? And I was like, no, nobody invited me, but but what's that? Ah? Yeah. And they were like, oh, it's like the most prestigious uh, marketing kind of advertising award show. And your work with the airline won like six gold awards. And winning gold is not easy. You mm-hmm. won six in one night. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Okay, that explains why so many people are emailing me. Because <laughs> nobody was replying my emails even. And then suddenly so many people want to email me. So yeah. I'm like, wow, this could be our big break. Mm. And that's what I remember talking to my partner about. This could be it. This could be the start of something, you know, the, 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 the light at the end of that tunnel. And, and it was. Um, I'm just curious to know, how has your relationship with, I guess, your partner, how has it changed, uh, throughout the, the, the years of ASCAC and eventually, uh, Hapmail and yeah. stuff like that? You know, we went to JC together. We were yeah. uh, classmates and we were super close friends in JC. You know, we had two years of ridiculous fun and <laughs> we were always joking. We were always making people laugh. He, he was always making people laugh. We had a lot of fun in JC. It was like the peak of our schooling years because it was just so much fun. And we went to uni together because we had so much fun in JC and we started our relationship off um, actually starting a first business together in uni, which didn't amount to anything, but we sold t-shirts. Gotcha. Um, and it ended terribly. We, we, terribly. We, we fought, we <laughs> oh, sh- shouted at each other. And I remember telling him, I will never work with you as a business partner ever again because I value your friendship so much mm. that I cannot work with you. You are too different from me. I cannot work with you. Yep. So when he approached me to with this idea of doing another business together uh, after we graduated, I was like, no, I can't do this. You know, we're, we're, we're so good friends. We're buddies. Our wives are friends. Our families are interconnected. Yep. I cannot lose you as a friend over business. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, I, think, I think we have matured so much that we can. And so I said, I'm not sure, but I don't want to take the risk, right? There's so many opportunities. We can always do something else. I'd rather maybe stay on the sidelines and be an advisor to you running S-Gang. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 no. He kept persisting and insisting that you have to run it because you are the perfect person for the job. And I trust you with my life. So you need to run this. And I said, if you're so persistent, then let's lay out some ground rules, right? Because- Remember tracing back to my earlier point. I'm not, I'm not driven by money. Yeah. I told him if we ever fight about money, I will quit first. 
if we ever have a dispute over who takes more money, I will quit first and I will give in first mm. because I'm not doing this for money. Um, if we do fight and we will fight, then let's fight gracefully. Let's fight professionally. Let's fight knowing that nothing is more important than our friendship. We will find success in business and career elsewhere, but we will never find a friendship like that again. Yeah. So let's recognize that. And let's be real that we need to therefore divide and conquer. What is the value that I bring that you really want me here for? And what is the value that you bring that I cannot do? And then put that as that's your dominion and that's your territory mm-hmm. that you are so good at and you're born to do and this is my territory. But that's not to say we have no say in that other territory, right? We learn to respect your territory and your dominion, but we also learn to respect the voice and the opinion of the other in your territory or about your territory. And that was something we fundamentally agreed upon. I was not the creative guy. I was not the content guy. I have mm. no inclinings, uh, inclinations in that space. But if I had an opinion about a piece, he would entertain it. And vice versa for business, he was not the business guy per se, but if he had an opinion about a client, about the way that business was conducted, I would have to listen. So from 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 your perspective and your past going through the previous business, going to this uh, ASCAG with your partner, were, were failures to be expected? And did you welcome them as a challenge? How, how, how do you all perceive that? Yeah, I think I think he knew my story of my first failure. Yeah. Um, and I respected him a lot because he went through really tough times in the diving unit in, in oh, Navy. Okay. And he came through that. I saw him before and after and I'm like, <laughs> whoa, that's some serious stuff, man. Like, yep. I didn't know anything close to that <laughs> in Army, but I just saw the kind of beatings that they were able to take and yep. move forward with that. And I was like, wow, that is resilience, yep. grit, and persistence and that is something that i wanted in a partner right in business because in life we know that we're going to get beat down we know it's going to happen but he was trained Mm. to stand up again right or paddle again and i was like yeah i think we need that in the team and he could sort of bring that edge formally trained i brought the business side of failures and in business and i felt that was the foundation that we needed to to get something going so these days you find yourself being the boss being the ceo how has your experiences in the past informed uh, i guess how you see your employees how you see your team and how you lead you know it was difficult for me to take on that title it Mm -hmm. was because I, I was a fresh grad. I did sales. I failed in a company and then I got lucky and found some success and started hiring people. Does that make me a CEO? That was a big question, right? And the answer was no. That doesn't make me the CEO. That makes me your employer. Yep. That makes me the guy who signs your contract, but <laughs> I was not CEO level. No way. I didn't know what I was doing half the time, right? I was just, I saw myself as being very lucky in many ways. And, and I think we, we reached a point in our journey when we were growing and growing and growing and people just kept 
joining and joining that we really needed formal titles. I resisted mm. that title for many years. I called myself business director. I called myself head of business. But then when we got quite big, um, I was advised to take on that role that title because the company needed structure and it needed leadership. And I was very also aware of the fact that if I were to take on that title, what must I learn or what skill sets must I have to, to take on that title? And I needed help. I needed somebody to teach me. So I hired an executive coach. Oh, I, interesting. I hired, I had mentors surrounding me. Um, and I read a ton of books um, in that two years uh, of our journey that gave me a little bit more confidence in taking that title because I I believed I couldn't take that title lightly. Interesting. And with regards to the team that uh, you have brought on, um, what what do you look out for? Because to to. To, to create memes is, is, it's, it's a bit of an interesting, uh, job scope and stuff like that. So we think of it in two spectrums, right? Yep. Um, the, the creative people, uh, and the others, others, <laughs> <Right>? others, <laughs> others being business, finance, yep. uh, analytics, whatever that might be. Um, I would say in general, I look for people who are really hungry. People who are very, very hungry, who, people who are very, very kind. Interesting. Um, people who really want somebody to take a bet on them. Mm. Maybe they never had somebody take a bet on them. Um, and I would say these are the people that I look for. People with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. People with an incredible story to tell. People that needed somebody to believe in them. Um, and I would say that guides a bit of the baseline of how we look for people. When you say hunger, how, how would you personally define it? I would say hunger is defined in a way of hunger to prove oneself, mm. hunger to succeed, hunger to create impact and significance in any way. And just this relentlessness of I'm not going to give up until I find success. Um, and that hunger cannot be a wayang thing where, oh, my boss is here, so I'm going to come in early or I'm going to stay late because he's still here. It's like, it's the unspoken. It's the unseen. It's the grind in the gym at 5 a.m. and nobody knows, nobody sees, there are no cameras. You're not Instagramming yourself. Mm. You're not telling the world. And I think we look for people like that. Um, it's hard to find, uh, but there are people with that hunger in them to prove themselves. Uh, and I love finding these people. But I would imagine um, these traits, uh, they kind of expose themselves over time. It's not something you can get over, like let's say, like a like an opening interview. So how does that usually how 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 has that played out uh, mm. over the years for your company? Well, hiring is a bit of a bet. Mm. You try to optimize your decision by asking questions to guide your assumption that that bet is gonna reap returns. But sometimes it doesn't. It stays flat. Sometimes it does. You reap a lot of returns. And sometimes it goes the other way where they don't bring any returns. In yeah. fact, they bring disutility. <laughs> disutility. <right? laughs> and that's why we observe. We we observe very closely. We have markers across the journey of the probation period. Mm. 
to really answer the question of does this person bring value to us um, within this period and we sometimes stretch that out to six months if we need to mm. just to make sure that the OB markers are there you are you are tracking in a way that gives us confidence to say you know what I, I do think this is right fit for us um, and this person is going to give further value down the road so there have been cases where we, we made I would say bets that didn't turn out yep. it was the right decision but the wrong outcome. So mm. learning to learning to differentiate what is a good decision and a wrong and a bad outcome doesn't necessarily mean you made a, a, a wrong decision. So of course there are bets that go south, not a good fit culturally, not a good fit personality wise. And that's fine. I think yep. we understand that that's totally fine. That's part of the process. Um, and learning to track that, learning to decipher what is a, a good bet and how do you refine that process to make better bets? Kind of like a gambler yeah. um, is, is important. Yeah. I'm particularly curious about, I guess, your relationship um, to the company, meaning Carl and Asgak, yeah. and even greater to Hapmill. Yeah. What, what sort of values do, I guess, the, the, the company possess and do you see them being interlinked with your own personal values? Um, no. Okay. I would say at the start, yes, but increasingly it has evolved quite a bit. Um, because I realized that my, this is not Carl LLC, <laughs> right? Like a lot of the law firms like to name themselves yes. the, the company name. But this was not that case. And I realized for it to be truly significant, truly impactful, truly great, needed to be more than me. Mm. I needed to be removed from the equation quite early on. I needed to play a role where the company would function like a machine without me, that the people running it and the people under them eventually running it would be guided to do the right things without me there, right? So I was very conscious in designing something where my role perhaps was to dream, to coach, to nudge, to take bets, but the core <laughs> function of the company was functioning super well without me inside. And that was the last five years of my conscious building efforts to make sure that in the early days, if I was not there, things couldn't move. Same for my partner. Mm. If we were not there, things couldn't mm. move. If we went for a reservist for two weeks, wah, it's like nothing happened, you know, everything was just clogged up. Yeah. And, and then begin this process of consciously removing ourselves from the process, giving responsibilities to others that allowed us to do other things of dreaming up new things. So that begs the question, what changed? Was it an external factor? Was it an internal factor? And was it difficult to, to give up those responsibilities because you and your partner started ASGAC and in a sense, I would imagine it to be precious in a sense. And what, what was difficult? Yeah. I think it was really this notion of we, we never know. We, I can't guarantee that I'll be around tomorrow. Mm. There is no guarantee that I will be alive tomorrow. Yep. Anything can happen. And, and I'm very sensitive to that. Because I read tragic news all the time about people just going because of an accident, because of unforeseen things. Yep. And I realize life is so fragile, right? And if the whole company was built to create impact, and if I were not around tomorrow, then impact would stop. Mm. 
And that's not what I want. That's it's not about me. It was never about me. It was about the challenge of building something impactful. And if it was truly impactful, it would go on for for years, hopefully, without me being in that equation. So with that foundation in mind, then it became a process of building processes, building uh, uh, structures that was so away from me making decisions it was there was a system in place and systemizing it was 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 a real challenge because again i've never had corporate experience so i didn't know how to do that <laughs> so i i really needed to study i really needed to guide people to say hey i'm not going to make any decisions because you are in charge of this but if you're struggling with that decision then come to me i will play coach mm. to you right uh so so that was very conscious it was not difficult for me i'm not power hungry i am not a control freak. I'm, I'm not a micromanager also. So, but if I see you making a silly decision or it's not, or you could have done better, I will call you up. So, mm-hmm. so I saw myself a lot more as a coach over time where I wanted people to fulfill their full potentials as well. Um, to really be put in the driver's seat and, and really have the thrill of driving a, 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 a fast moving vehicle. Uh, I was driving it for a while, but you know, you should have a chance to drive and so should other people. And I'm very happy not being in the driver's seat, uh, for a particular function uh, like sales or for yeah. business development. And, and that was also the beginning of this new chapter where I felt a great sense of fulfillment in seeing the people I had worked with from the early days or from the beginning grow into these giants that mm. I look at them and go wow I never knew you had that in you I believed you did but now seeing it is kind of mind-blowing yeah. so I, I I felt that was so meaningful for for the journey Um, going back to perhaps my early beginnings of finding meaning in work uh, that felt so meaningful to me and I and I crave a lot for that to empower people to find potential to achieve great things uh, and if I can play a part in coaching them then then wow that would be a great thing for me it sounds to me like the the coaching part that you have moved on to this new phase in your life where I guess in a sense of how uh, invigorated you are by your investor initially giving you that chance and giving you the opportunity to really prove yourself Consequently, right now you are providing the same thing back to your employees. Yeah, I guess, I guess, um, that came along also because I became a father somewhere mm. along the way. And I, and I asked myself, what kind of father would I want to be? <laughs> right. Um, there are many modes of fatherhood, you yeah. know, Asian tiger dad, um, uh, or the more Western approach. Yep. And, and I was trying to find my way around being a father and I realized, my personality, my experience, my upbringing, uh, presented me to be a more coaching kind of dad. Like, I'm gotcha. not going to stop you if you're going to fall. I'm going to let you fall and then kind of figure out what happened. How do you feel about that? And mm. do you want to fall again? You know, <laughs> are you, are you therefore scared of riding that bike because you fell once? And how do I coach you into not being scared of riding a bike again? I'm not going to like prevent you from falling. I'm going to coach you into making sure cycling is really what you want to do. And if cycling is what you want to do, then be prepared to fall. I'm curious to know, did you read up a lot of, of books and resources before? Before, I guess, your eventual fatherhood and stuff? No, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, a lot of it was, I would say, listening to very inspiring, maybe athletes. I'm, I'm a really, mm. like, uh, sports geek, uh, sports fan. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I, I love business figures as well. And I was very always intrigued by how do you raise successful children? I would say, mm. how do you, f- 
raise successful people in general. And and again, going back to the system of Singapore, it was always like, you need to do these things. These are the boxes. Yes. Right. You need to do this and then you are successful because you draw a stable salary in a corporate job. There are certain metrics that you have to hit. Yeah. yeah. And I found myself going through life, finding a little bit of success in what I define to be successful, to be not too bad. You know, I, yeah. I was not, not too bad. bad. <laughs> and I f- called my, and I found that not because I checked off boxes. I found that from going into the unknowns, doing things that nobody else did, um, taking risks, being able to jump off a cliff, not knowing what was underneath. And that was affirmed by some of the people I listened to via podcasts that they found similar paths because their parents gave them that complete freedom. Mm. They gave them that safety net of coming home to, to the same thing I described. And I found that so meaningful in invalidating perhaps my worldview of parenthood and my worldview of my career yep. um, that I want to perhaps do the same for my children. But it's also very difficult in this system where, oh, how, which primary school? Uh? Mm. Oh, how did they do? Uh? What yep. what enrichment class they have? Uh? Yeah. Uh, how many points they score? Uh? Yep. And I'm struggling all the time to consciously remind myself that no, there is a bigger picture, bigger system. They have to figure things out and they will figure things out despite not fitting into the system or not being in the system. And true success is perhaps found outside of the system. You would imagine that however amount of time has passed since you were back in school that things would have changed (laughs) to a certain degree. (laughs) I don't think it will because this journey or the way that I think of it and maybe some people think Mm. of it it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for the majority who perhaps buy into a system where you just follow the rules and you'll be safe. You'll be mm. fine. Um, but there are thrill seekers or adventure seekers like maybe myself who, because of privilege, we have the ability to think like that. Yeah. Um, I think my parents would have never, never had the chance to do that. Right. And, and I feel because of this privilege, we need to take all the risks and, and think in a way that allows us to because of the privilege we have. So mm. so that's a little bit of how I see it. Well, I guess we can only tell like 20, 30 years later, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe. You mentioned something about impact. Um, How would you define impact? Because when I think of impact, I think of legacy. Yeah. How, how would you define these um, two seemingly uh, intangible things, really? Yeah. This was perhaps the only thing or the one of the most important things I took away from my degree in economics, right? In economics, you learn this term called utility, right? A function of utility means value you create. Mm. Uh, and usually, you know, you can apply it into a financial or economic value, like you created $100 worth of value. That's why I pay you 100 bucks per hour for yep. your job. Um, but there's, and that's very tangible, economic, sort of financial utility. And that's, I think, one classic view of utility, which is I create financial value and that's my worth. Mm. That's why you pay me this salary. That's why I can demand this salary because I, that's my value to the world. And that's, I think the whole finance sector is defined like that. Wow. He's a, amazing trader, amazing yep. banker. Wow, he he brings a lot of value to the bank. That's why we pay him that package. But then if you consider careers or another side of utility, which is perhaps intangible utility, value to the world in another, in another sense. And you think of a career like teachers, 
mm. right? You, and you think about the teachers that taught some of the most successful people or even ourselves that changed our lives in one way or another. Um, and then all these kids in their class who got their lives changed because of her amazing, his or her amazing teaching and went on to do great things because they were inspired by you. The teacher doesn't get paid a reflection yeah. of that value. <laughs> yeah. The teacher gets paid a, f- a fixed salary for yes. the next 20 years. Yep. It doesn't really change much. Yeah. But that utility is not measured in the pay package. Same with a nurse. Yep. A nurse who saves somebody's life because of the amazing care he yep. or she gave to rescue somebody. And then maybe that somebody went on to do amazing things for the world. Mm. That nurse, that nurse's utility is never captured in the economic or financial sense. And then when I learned about this, I was like, there's a lot of work out there in the world that creates this kind of intangible utility. Mm. And I wanted to find that. Obviously, I didn't want to be broke yeah, and be a struggling utility person <laughs> that was just giving free utility and not getting paid. Yeah, I, I recognized enough. that I needed a, a certain quality of life. Yep. But other than that, utility in that intangible sense was very interesting to me. And why SGAG attracted me to... Why the page or why running SGAG was attractive for me was because I saw laughter as utility. Oh, interesting. I saw being able to make people laugh in the hundreds and thousands and millions that the content reach was a summation of a little utility that would add up over time. Like if I make you go, ha ha ha, that's them stupid, that's them lame, ha ha ha, three seconds. And if I spread that across a million people, that was a lot of utility. Oh, interesting. Because I was, I was just thinking when you were talking, like, how do you wrestle the, the, the concepts that you want of your utility against, I guess, capitalism, which is more of the, 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 the fuel for, for businesses? Because a business, unfortunately, at the end of the day, has to make profit, yeah. has to pay out employees, has to do a lot of things, especially if you have investors. Yeah. So it runs kind of in conflict to a certain degree. How? Yeah. Because we are so used to seeing as a value for time. Let's say someone yeah. does X amount of work, you pay them X amount. But something like, let's say your example of the nurse, yeah. um, we come peer into the future and it's unfortunately only on hindsight. Then we can say, oh, it's traced back to this nurse because of the care he or she gave. Yeah. Then we can kind of ascertain a certain amount of value to it. Yeah. 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 So I saw laughter as a utility and I was like, wow, if I can make millions of people, ha ha ha, for one day a week, that would be amazing impact in utility. And it was further validated when we started getting messages like, hey, I was like going through hell. I was suicidal. And I watched this video and I snapped out of it. And these would come now and then. Mm. And whenever I read those messages, I was like, wow, there is a deeper sense of utility here that I could have never known if they never sent me the message. Then the question was, how many more of such incidents happened in the course of our journey and and i will assume there would be some and and we have to keep finding these things um and then to your point of making money earning profits what does that mean right and and the the typical sme boss will tell you well go and buy a mercedes lah upgrade to a next bigger house but but to me again going back to where i started from that, that didn't mean much to me, mm. right? Driving a bigger car, living in a bigger house is, is cool, but it didn't bring much utility beyond my family or four. What would be bigger utility then? To me, that was 
giving people opportunities. That was betting on people and mm. helping them find a passion or a purpose or find their utility. Mm. Giving them a paycheck um, to do so. Putting food on the table for their families yeah. and their families then going out into the world to create more value. And me being the person who signs their paycheck and then creating this big spread of utility from giving jobs was very powerful. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like a reverse pyramid. <laughs> like it, it starts from you. Oh, it's like a river, really. It flows out from you. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. You know, yeah. I love that that I don't know the stories. I might not be able to capture the lives that were changed some way or another because of a paycheck, because of a laughter. Yeah. But I know something is happening and I have to keep feeding that. I have to keep working towards getting that net as wide as I can, yeah. which is why we started the new company, the Creator Network, yeah. which was meant to pay creators. A lot of creators in Southeast Asia have decent sized followings and they don't know how to monetize, right? And the business person that I am, I, I, I found success in monetizing content. And we started to build on this hypothesis if we could transfer that to creators and whether they could get paid from our clients. And that worked out quite nicely. And, and we hear stories of these creators, maybe who live in a third tier, uh, city or maybe not even in a city, in a community in the Philippines and, you know, struggling financially. And then they found success on TikTok because they are quite funny yep. and then getting paid for it because we got them a gig. And that being able to pay off school fees for their brother, mm. being able to put food on the table, being able to just do these things they were never able to do. Is so meaningful for me. So, in in going off of that, how would you describe the vision of uh Asgag and in, in in a greater picture, Headmill? I think it goes back to the core mission, which is surprising because we formed it on day one when we decided to do this full time, and day it still one. stands. Yeah. Oh wow! We literally sat down like we need a mission statement. <laughs> and our first day at work is gonna be a mission statement writing exercise, <laughs> okay. and it was a very simple mission, which was to better the lives of Singaporeans, mm. right? Uh, and and we expanded that eventually to bettering the lives of people in Southeast Asia through the content we we create create and we distribute, right? So it was this sense of betterment, increasing utility, providing value in an uh, intangible sense of a laughter, of yeah. a joke, or a, a tangible sense of getting paid. Interesting. Um, With regards to what ASGAC provides, like content-wise, I'm just curious to know, was there a shift um, with regards to the content that you guys put out Um throughout the journey was there like a particular conscious shift yeah yeah for sure shifting all the time actually we were very aggressive in the early days of before it was a business you we were a very aggressive page we were a troll page <laughs> we make fun of people and and that was the early days of social media where yep. there's no governance there isn't there are no rules facebook didn't have rules government didn't have rules there was no pofma there was nothing it was just a the wild, wild ground, yeah. right? You can do anything. You make fun of people. You cyber bully them. There was there was nothing like that, you know. And we were very aggressive at the start. We we made fun of people. We we made distasteful jokes mm. at times. And because there was no theory to ground what was allowed and what's not, we went out of control at times. And mm. and it was a very sort of reflective process in the journey of how can we do better. Because we're always screwing up in some way or another, that's given, always failing. 
how do we recognize that? And then how do we do better, right? In terms of content strategy, content approach. And that is a very, very ongoing thing. Every month, every week, mm. the content team sits down to ask that question. And because social media is so new, yes. it's not like TV. I have broadcast laws and ethics and yep. blah, 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 blah. They're still there's writing nothing. the laws. <laughs> yeah, there are no laws. And then suddenly it's not irrelevant because the algorithm changed. Suddenly yeah. it's not relevant because this platform is not relevant. Yeah. Right? So it's like, it's this uncharted territory so we figured we cannot let top it cannot be a top-down approach where the platform says this and the government says this of course we must abide by it yes. when it comes because you get banned <laughs> but you must have a guiding set of principles that would probably hold you through the test of time were there concerns initially about shifting the I guess the things that you guys put out content-wise as the company matures, I guess as you, your partners, and I guess the people in the company mature as well, you guys shift away from... Because to me right now, when I look at it, there is still the comedy aspect. There's still the... But there is more of a, like a narrative aspect, like stories that you guys are trying to tell. Yeah. Were there concerns initially about, I guess, losing followers, losing a certain sense of metric that way? Yeah, I think people would call us out, oh, you've changed, right? <laughs> You're no longer funny. You're lame. Yeah. And and I think when you operate a page or you operate a content platform, you 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 think that my thinking was is always going to be up, and the one way was up, okay, right? Like everything is just up, 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 up. Yep. But in reality, it's a it's a roller coaster. The in terms of traction, followership, quality of content, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. It's ever changing. There are good seasons of amazing content. There rough patches of crappy content yep. and we started to recognize that once we had a bit more uh experience and a bit more timeline under our belt where we recognize yeah it's a cyclical thing you have good people that synergize because they joined you and then you make amazing stuff for a period and then you have them leave and then new dynamics form and then it takes a bit of a time to get synergy and maybe there is no synergy even so it's up and down it's up and down it's a journey and at the start of course yeah wow people are angry you know what should we do but over time it's like you know what we're just gonna keep going what where we think we should be going and keep doing what we think we should be doing and if it fails it fails you know if people mm. drop off we we suck then so be it we will do something else right so we lost that i would say we 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 lost that sense of being scared about upsetting people in terms of maybe selling out yep, or yep. yeah it became like yeah nobody is not everybody's gonna like us we understand that as a fact our content is gonna be crappy at times and great at times we understand that as a fact and we're gonna lose followers clients and people along the way yep. that's a fact of life not just our company but any company in, yeah. in the world goes through that and it, it took us a bit of maturity to understand that fully and then I would say it became we became super comfortable after that there was less anxiety there was less stress it was like yeah it's totally cool you wanna <laughs> quit okay I'll quit la. Yeah, yeah yeah go and people were like huh so chill and like yeah you know it's part of life it's part of life Um, yeah and it's a and, very uh, mindful take at it yeah. and I would say that gave us the ability to sleep at night you know we're not mm. too worried okay now you know we screw up we admit it uh, we are, we're not people who shy away from responsibility we screw up admit it we'll do better but do you guys better. are still running ultimately at the end of the day yeah and, and we saw it at some point like people always see social media a little bit like a sprint like you need to be super fast super hot super amazing but we've been around for nine years now oh god and 
preschooler. It's not even a marathon. It's yeah. like, it's just nonstop. And you need to understand how to mentally navigate that when you go for nine years on social media. Mm. You cannot be so sensitive to all the comments, the numbers, you know, it goes up, it goes down. It's okay. You know, it's, it's generally a part of life now, uh, social media. Do you think because you have the perspective, as as we talked about before, living a life before the internet age, before social media even, that you're not too tied down with the metrics? Because when that like like when Instagram, Facebook, when you are exposed to them, you have a certain age of maturity that you understand that there is reality and there is what is online. I think so. You know, yeah. I like I'm super. I'm quite private on social media. Like I I don't care about putting up things on my like, own like when I tried to research you for this episode when I typed Karl Mark the other Karl Marx came out it's yeah. Karl Marx yeah. I, I, I actually don't like I don't want I would do publicity for the company I would have interviews and all that but I wouldn't post a, on a public account I, I wouldn't post private things uh, to people I won't know mm. because I don't I don't have a need for social validation from likes I don't I, I don't feel a sense of satisfaction I used to when social media first came out I was like yeah I need more likes and then at some point I realized no I don't I, I'm mm. quite happy without it I'm, and privacy to me became this thing of amazing value Utility. like <laughs> wow people not knowing certain aspects and not being able to use that against me and whatever is great you know privacy is cool and then (laughs) I started like listening to Edward Snowden and all these guys and I was like oh my I love this stuff (laughs) they have phones that have no cameras you know they use signal they the camera on their laptop (laughs) then then I start. I was really into this like this stuff and I was like but I run a social media company so finding that balance was also a part of my journey and um it was super interesting. I just I just think watching this space evolve and continuing to evolve uh is very, very interesting. So I'm not bogged down by anxiety when people are at a party and I'm not invited. Like I think a lot of youth struggle with things like that. And and I'm like you said, I'm very conscious to realize that and recognize that there is life outside of social media. I have a great life without social media and that will never change, be it whether I'm posting or not or I'm yeah. invited to things or not. That doesn't change the fact that I have a good life. I live a good life. I guess step one to 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 that is to even recognize that there is a life outside of just social media. Whatever yeah. you see online, however curated it might be, how nice it might be, but there is still a life outside of social media. Absolutely. And I have a couple of friends who don't have social media, yeah. uh, don't even have smartphone, one of them. Oh, re- uh, amazing. <laughs> and he's one of my most respected friends. You know, he's super smart, a deep thinker in his field. Um, and he's so deep in his field because he's not distracted by the noise. And he has, I went to his uh, apartment in, in New York. Yeah. Um, having not seen him for maybe 10 years, I went to visit him a couple of years ago in New York. And, and he doesn't have a smartphone. Mm. He doesn't have a computer in his apartment. Uh, he has a computer at work, but he doesn't have a computer at home. He doesn't have a TV. Yeah. His apartment is just filled with blank canvases and paint mm. and when he comes back from work he's just painting um, and he does that because he wants to express his emotions through art 
And I'm like, whoa, that's a super hipster thing to do. But you can live like that. That, that I think revealed to me that there are alternative ways of living. Yeah. Uh, you don't need this system or this machinery to dictate what the world should be. And, and he was doing that. And I was so inspired by that to sort of take a step back and look at the whole big picture. Taking a look into the future and going off that point, um, do you think that metaphorically when when the internet came upon us, it's trusted upon us, we adopted it uh, without really thinking much, we just took it in and everything, do you think we might have lost something? Yeah, man, so much of it. I mean, we lost the ability to interact as humans. Mm. I think we lost a lot of that. A lot of that is now done by an app to swipe, to DM. Um, even simple things like having a conversation with the opposite sex, mm. right? You know, I grew up in a generation of, you know, chasing up uh, somebody that you found attractive in a physical location, having to say the right things, uh, wear the right <laughs> things, smell right. Yeah. Everything must be right yeah. to, to optimize for- Optimize. Uh, for a, a re- reply yeah. or a response, right? But now it's like, okay, I need a nice picture. I need a witty pickup line on yeah. text. Yeah. I need a, a curated photo, right? And I don't know that how to do that because I think I came from a world where we didn't have that. It was real life. We had to do it real life. And now I kind of see how people are doing it on the digital world. And I think being able to marry both is an advantage in some sense. Interesting. I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. What do you think will be important in the next three to five years, when you look at the ever-shifting landscape right now with technology, things are getting smaller. I mean, people have hypothesized that within the next 10 years, the the phones that we have now will be integrated into us and the the state of content getting churned out these days. You have factories, factories churning out content. You have people, individual people churning out content. What do you think would be important? Um, I think there is this thing that will is already out and is probably going to take a bigger importance, a larger importance in, in our lives and in society, which is what we call digital emotional intelligence. Digital emotional. So there is emotional intelligence. Yeah. I mean, that has been, I think, on the rise within the last two decades, but now yeah. it's digital emotional yeah. intelligence. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, which is how do you conduct yourself digitally? How do you deal with digital, right? Mm. Um, for example, you hear of these stories during COVID, which is most recently where people upload photos of their group shots on Instagram, then they get arrested. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you even begin to do that? Like that makes no sense to me. It doesn't. Zero digital emotional intelligence. Why would you do that? Why would you go to jail for that? That is the dumbest thing to go to jail for. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy cuckoo, you know, really yeah. a cuckoo. And I'm like, you need to be taught such things. Mm. And apparently so. Learn to privatize your account. Yeah. Learn not to post these things. Yeah. Learn, right? Learn not to say something using your own profile to slam somebody and then your future employer sees it. And then you lose the job. You've all heard of cases like yep. that. There's so many cases like that. And the question is, then... People don't know these things, right? They don't know how to disconnect real world to digital world. And on digital world, they're all over the place saying things and it gets tracked. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, 
people don't get it, right? So I think a lot of education is going to come in schools, in, in courses, in, 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 in just a foundational living, uh, course of what you should do online and how should you do it. And, and I think that's going to continue to be more and more important. But it's interesting that you mentioned education because I guess with the rise of social media, let's say Twitter, I mean, there are cases where people tweet something and they subsequently get, I guess, uh, they, they lose their job, they get persecuted for it. Yeah. And when you say education, I can't help but think that perhaps by the time we recognize that this is a need, we recognize that, oh, we want to put it in, let's say, education, like the, the system, we will probably be like 40 and 50. But those are the people that might not have received it. They will be kind of like the ones... Uh, writing hateful comments and stuff like that online, that would be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's already being put out. Um, some of this, uh, especially in America, for example, mm. where it is, I think always a few steps ahead of Asia in terms of such, uh, trends and, yeah. and, and behaviors. Um, I mean, just for example, the recent, uh, storming of the Capitol. Yep. Um, you see all these people going in there, uh, well, you know, causing a big mess and, and the, and then subsequently having all that media coverage of the actual storming using image recognition, facial recognition, yeah. tracking all of them one by one and bringing them in one by one. Which led me to think, did they ever think about that? Like, did they ever think that they would be arrested? Mm -hmm. I don't think so, you know. I think they really had no clue that their images, their faces would be tracked and traced and crowdsourced for who this guy <laughs> is. Yeah, there was yeah. a crowdsourcing effort to yeah. find this uh, girl. Like the ex-boyfriend came out and said, that's my ex-girlfriend. I know who she is. I know where she lives. Go arrest her. Jesus. And I, that is such a great case in history for us to understand these things, you know, because we've never, it's uncharted territory. Nobody has ever done something like that in a generation like this that allows your face to be tracked and arrested. It sets, it, to me, it sets a very bad precedence. I think the storming is terrible, horribly heinous. But the fact that they can use technology like that to 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 identify people on such a minuscule, minute level shows, I guess, what Edward Snowden would say. I guess the death of yeah. privacy. Yeah, I think he wrote an article right right after exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. And and I reference maybe at this point in twenty twenty one where maybe in our country maybe perhaps to the limitations of uh, what technology can do now of a case just two days ago where we can't do that to somebody who doesn't have social media, right? Like there was this boomer uncle who went into this uh, F&B joint. just read that just now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Took out the LGBT flag that they were promoting, Hate hurled this. some yeah. really nasty comments, threw the flag at the yeah. cashier and stormed off. An uncle doesn't have social media. Yeah. People cannot trace him now, <laughs> right? People cannot find him. Yeah, yeah. And I was literally looking at that going, this must be one of the last incidents in modern mankind mm. that you can't find him because that generation, you cannot find them. You don't know who they are. You yeah. know, the uncles all look the same. They don't have social media, <laughs> right? And you cannot track them. Yeah. And I was like, that will never ever happen in the future. From like, this point on. Yeah. yeah, from this point on, there's when that generation sort of moves on, yeah. everybody else who does anything that gets captured will be identified yeah. almost instantaneously. Yeah. And that's scary. 
Are you particularly optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'm a super optimistic person. Like, I think maybe being an entrepreneur, oh. <laughs> um, I'm just <laughs> naturally, unrationally optimistic. Yeah. Right. So I'm super optimistic. Um, yeah. Interesting. In closing, I have two more questions for you. Um, when you think back about your journey, uh, with through school and through businesses and with ASCAC and all, um, has there been any guiding philosophies that has helped you through the 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 journey? Any particular sayings? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, I think two in particular. Um, the, the first one is, um, the, the lovely quote, um, that talks about the man in the arena, right? The man in the, the man in the arena. Let me, let me Google it, uh, and read it <laughs> since you've never heard of it. Um, the man in the arena. Yeah. What arena are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, let me just pull it out. The man in one, the arena. One second. Yeah. Sounds like a gladiator. So, okay. So it's by Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and the quote goes a little something like this. Um, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Mm. Yeah. How do you encounter this quote? I think it was one of those things you read when you're a kid, <laughs> a teenager probably, yeah. and I was like, whoa, that is some deep stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think an application um, and perhaps through school, through life for me, there's a lot of the people at the sidelines who are skeptics, right? Like haters, skeptics, yep. keyboard warriors. Oh, yep. that will never work. Um, you're bound to fail. This will be a one hit wonder. You know, you found success, but I don't think it will work. And there's a lot of that in, in a lot of variations of that as well. Yeah. yeah. In, in growing up, right? In, in Singaporean life, I guess there's a lot of that skepticism. Um, and, I've always tried to find meaning to to that. Like, are they mm. are they really my wise friends telling me what's better? But then I realized after reading that quote, like, no, it skepticism and judgment has been before me. It will come after me, and it is encapsulated so brilliantly by Teddy Roosevelt here to my response, which is, you got to do it, You know, it does you will fail you will probably fail, but it doesn't mean it's not worth the journey. It is not something you should be scared of. It is in that sentence, it says, if you fail, you fail daring greatly yeah. and not with the cold and timid souls. Yeah. And I was like, hell yeah, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to do that, right? So that was yeah. really like when somebody comes to me and tells me, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. I'm like, yeah, go, just do it. Like do it. 
do it because you never know where that might take you. And my journey has been doing things that nobody affirmed or nobody thought it was a great idea, stumbling, failing, uh, and figuring it out. And it's so meaningful for me. So I, I think that was one of the guiding quotes for me through the years. Um, and I think the second principle I really live by is uh, what we talked about through this podcast, which is not me not knowing that I will live even mm. tomorrow and and knowing that my life and my time is is precious. It's a gift. Yep. It's a privilege. Even being alive and being able to breathe is a privilege. Yep. With this privilege, let's not waste it, right? Let's not waste it doing things that you don't want to do. Let's not waste it building dreams of other people's dreams like build your own dreams do your own things and and if you fail it's okay and even dare to dream in the first place yeah and and i and i always felt i was never told that i was never told Mm, interesting uh, i was always i think maybe the system or maybe me assumes that we'll be around forever assumes Mm. that this will end when we retire and we have our insurance and CPF to claim and take out and slowly retire. And no. you get beamed up to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, there are all these sort of things that are laid out for you in society that assumes you'll be around forever. Mm. Let's do some retirement planning. Yep. That's what I always hear from my insurance agent. I'm yep. like, yo, I don't even know if I'll be here in two hours, man. Fair enough. There's nothing to plan for. I'm sorry. I don't believe in that. <laughs> Like, if I'm alive by then, it's a privilege, right? <laughs> but enough, I'm yeah. not going to make these plans for 30 years down the road. Yeah. So I think these principles shape greatly into how I make decisions, how I choose to to, to spend time. Um, it all comes into perspective when you know every day is a gift. You really only have the now. Yeah. Lastly, my last question is, how would you define success today in 2021? And has that changed in any fashion? Uh or any deviations uh, in, in your journey? I think success to me is being able to have dinner on Sunday night with a tingle of excitement for Monday morning, looking forward to what you're going to do in the week ahead, not having Sunday blues and, mm. and just feeling excited with life, right? Whatever that might be, I think being able to... because. I was just talking to my wife about it. We both had points in our lives where Sunday evenings was the worst. It was the Sunday blue syndrome. We're going back to this thing tomorrow. I hate it. I have no choice. Mm. I really dread it and I'm not looking forward to the week. And now I live my life with this excitement for life, with this tingle in my stomach, this spring that, man, I can't wait to get Monday in. Yeah. And, and it sounds... It sounds crazy, but to me, being able to find that, whatever that might be that works for you, is a real meaning of success for me, which is not wasting your time. You're genuinely excited about life. And I think there's many things in life to be excited for. And being able to feel that in any sense, you should call yourself successful. Fantastic. This has been a fantastic episode. Where can people not find you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you have anything, let's say from SGAG, from uh, the Creators Network that you would like to plug, you would like to uh, put forth the news out there? Well, I I think if you love our content, drop us a follow on SGAG. Um, if you are a content creator uh, and wherever you might be, you can check out the Headmill Creator Network. Uh, that's at headmill.com. Do you accept fan uh, mail? 
Yeah, we get a lot of fan mail in yeah. our inboxes, DMs. Uh, I don't read most of them, yeah. but if you want to connect with me, I am on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, that is one social media platform that I am quite active on. Yeah. Uh, for Why bus- LinkedIn? For business purposes. Gotcha. Yeah, for more opportunity building. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I gear um, my, my, my mind to. Yeah. Um, so I'm very active there. I read most things there, although 90% of it are SEO and website building emails. <laughs> but yeah, I generally read most things there okay this has been a fantastic podcast thank you for your time carl thank you for having me thank you thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired if you enjoyed what you heard thus far do give us a follow on instagram and don't forget to share and subscribe stay tuned for the next episode